Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine the Sawa, pressure mounts on Zimbabwe's president to start national dialogue and concerns over violent crackdown on protesters in Cameroon. In economics news, Kenya Central Bank holds main lending rate at 9% and in sports news, Zambian legend Kalusho Boiler's ban reduced an appeal by FIFA. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has ordered the arrest of a number of security officials following a report by the news channel Sky News, which shows officers physically assaulting a member of the public. In the video, three officials are seen beating a man on the head on social media. Mnangagwa says he was appalled by the incident. Zimbabwe security forces have come under intense criticism for their actions during the recent protest of a sharp increase in the fuel price. Price. However, the director of the Center for Community Development in Zimbabwe, Philip Pasarai, says Mnangagwa's reaction is all a farce as he allows the atrocities committed by the security forces to continue. The internet is awash. Private local media is awash with evidence, more evidence of the atrocities that have been committed by members of his security forces, you know, the soldiers and the police. Does it have to take a report by the Sky News, you know, for the president to act? And it's surprising that the president, the whole president is shocked by that video. There is more evidence of more abuses, you know, atrocities that have been committed by members of the security forces. And surely if the president is genuine, He should have acted two weeks ago. Let's not reach too much into his Twitter message this morning because it's nothing, it's meaningless to the majority of Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, South Africa's opposition DA party will be approaching the United Nations Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court to seek intervention on the human rights crisis gripping Zimbabwe. The party announced on Monday during a press briefing in Johannesburg attended by a number of MPs and members of Zimbabwe's opposition MDC Alliance party. DA leader Musi Maimani says South Africa should use its non-permanent seat this year to advance human rights, but the ruling ANC cannot be trusted to do this. Our record of voting in the UN Security Council does not side with human rights. It sides with dictators. Already we are supporting Maduro in in Venezuela. This is a government who have long forgotten Nelson Mandela's invitation to all of us to say our foreign policy must be guided by human rights. Therefore, 
The ANC cannot be trusted to side with the people of Zimbabwe. That's why we are going to international bodies. The Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has urged the French President Emmanuel Macron to stop seeing his country through Western eyes and recognize that his administration had spared the country from a civil war. This after Macron strongly criticized Egypt for what he called its deteriorating human rights situation. Speaking at a tense joint news conference in Cairo, Macron says he is alarmed to see that things have moved in the wrong direction since he raised the issue with his Egyptian counterpart. I also shared with President Sisi my deep belief that stability and durable peace go hand in hand with respect for individual dignity and the rule of law. And the search for stability and security that concerns us and is part of our partnership that we discussed in October 2017 cannot be dissociated from the question of human rights. Cameroon's main opposition leader Maurice Kamtu has been arrested. Kamtu is leader of the Cameroon Renaissance Movement, has reportedly been taken to an unknown destination, according to lawyer Akpo Hungoho in the Anglophone region. The government has not yet commented on the development. However, it's largely believed his arrest, which took place in Douala, is linked to a peaceful protest by Kamtu's party over the weekend. Reports indicate that he's not the only one detained, but that other members of the party have also been held and are due to be sent to Yahunde for questioning. And finally, the Democratic Republic of Congo's government says it extradited two leaders of the Rwanda-Hutu FDLR rebels to Rwanda as part of a legal agreement. One of the two men extradited was Bazie Fols Laforge, spokesperson for the FDLR. The FDLR, founded in 2000, has been fighting in eastern DRC for decades. Authorities in Gigali say the group's leaders took part in the 1994 Rwandan genocide in which some 800,000 people mainly minority Tutsis, were killed by the military and by Hutu militia. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Nagagwa's government, is under pressure to start meaningful dialogue with opposition parties and cure the calamity in the country. While the ZANU-PF leader has expressed interest to dialogue, the main opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa, has set conditions for such to take place. The idea for Zimbabwe to dialogue first came through recommendations by the Khalima Mutlante Commission, but the call grew louder a week ago when fuel protests left a number of people dead. Simon Muchama reports from Harare. The Zimbabwean government is under pressure to dialogue with opposition leaders, churches and other stakeholders to end anarchy. President Emerson Mnangagwa took over from Robert Mugabe in November 2017, but challenges have worsened to date. He narrowly won the July 30 elections against MDC leader Nelson Chamisa, and again, that victory was challenged. Zimbabwe has been facing numerous challenges, but the recent fuel price hike sparked widespread protests 
leading to the death of 12 people. However, the crackdown by armed soldiers has attracted criticism worldwide such that Mnangagwa is now expressing willingness to dialogue. Zimbabwe Council of Churches, ZCC, led by Reverend Dr. Kenneth Mtata, and Zimbabwe Editors Forum has so far established a national consensus aimed at building national cohesion. Reverend Mtata explained. What, what we do when we exalt the sanctity of the Constitution, we, we say power resides in something that is outside human beings. In other words, power does not reside in persons. Power resides in a document that we have decided uh, encapsulates our vision for public engagement. And, and I think promotion of the sanctity of the Constitution is one, I think, way of shaping the way we are going to order public space in far much more ways than uh, we have been doing uh, before. You know, I have, uh, myself, uh, these days, want to keep on my table uh, two books. Uh, uh, the other one I left in the car. But I, I, I want to keep this book, which is the Constitution and the Bible, because, because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a theologian, I, I'm, I'm a church leader. So I, I love to keep the Constitution next to the Bible. Because the Bible tells me how I am ordered internally as a faith person. But this book tells me how I must participate in an ordered space publicly with others. This is the only way to liberate public engagement. Dates to start the dialogue have already been set, but due to the passing of Oliver Mtukudzi last week, the Friday meeting was postponed to Wednesday this week. While President Mnangagwa is willing to dialogue, his counterpart in the opposition MDC, Noson Chamisa, is demanding the release of his party members before any talks. A number of his supporters and party leaders were arrested during the military crackdown that followed violent fuel protests two weeks ago. Dr. Mutata said a number of questions need answers before dialogue takes place. Who are we? And I think this is a question that the media and the church can actually shape. This question needs to be answered in order for people to find a way of thinking about their destiny together. If this question is not properly answered, you can easily, the media and the church can actually contribute to a problem. I don't know if you are aware uh, of what happened uh, with the genocide in Rwanda. The genocide in Rwanda is a very interesting case because uh, on, on radio, someone started to describe the different groups. And one description was that uh, one tribe was described as cockroaches on media. And all of a sudden, a new identity was formed around the nation. You def defined the nation in terms of its divisions. And in a very short space of time, of course, we know what happened. It led uh, to, a, to a genocide. Uh, some people went and uh, they fled and they went to run uh, and hide in the churches. And when they were hiding in churches, the churches were so much afraid to side with those who were vulnerable and they went to inform those who were killing them that uh, some of the people are hiding here in the churches. Zimbabweans have traveled this road several times from independence in 1980. The 1980s massacre of more than 20,000 Debele-speaking people was an eye-opener. Farm invasions left painful scars during the 1990s, but 
The world voiced when more than 400 people were killed ahead of the presidential runoff in 2008. Negotiations then led to the formation of the unity government, which many citizens feel did not adequately resolve the national problem, Dr. Mtada said. What makes a national dialogue successful? Do we have a framework ourselves? of uh, what we think would become a successful national dialogue. Yes, we have a draft now. We have uh, just uh, uh, started working uh, on this draft. It's not yet complete, but uh, in this last week, this is what we have been working on. Uh, and uh, I think we are also going to share it with others so that it can get uh, strengthened. But what makes a, a national dialogue successful is that it gives you dividends for a period longer than 10 years. If, if you can enjoy its fruits, for a period longer than 10 years, then you know that the dialogue has, been, has become successful. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, will be approaching the United Nations Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court to seek intervention on the human rights crisis gripping Zimbabwe. The party announced this during a press briefing in Johannesburg on Monday that it hosted with a number of MPs and members of Zimbabwe's opposition MDC Alliance party. DA leader Musumaimani says South Africa should use its non-permanent seat this year to advance human rights, but he says the ANC cannot be trusted to do this. Busi Chimombe reports. MDC Alliance Member of Parliament Shadrach Mashaya Mombe has recounted the crackdown on citizens and activists under President Emerson Mnangagwa following protests against skyrocketing fuel prices and cost of living. Mugabe was a bit, but during Mugabe time there was no anyone who was shot in the street for demonstrating. But this Government since August last year, just six months, there are more than 20 people who have been killed. Over 76 people treated uh, with gunshots. The MDC Alliance shares fraternal relations with South Africa's Democratic Alliance, which is committed to champion the cause of the Zimbabwean people. Leader Musimaimane says he wrote to President Cyril Ramaphosa while he was in Davos, Switzerland, attending the World Economic Forum last week. He, however, says the ANC-led government cannot be trusted to champion the cause of the Zimbabweans, even as it enjoys a non-permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council this year. Our record of voting in the UN Security Council does not side with human rights. It sides with dictators. Already we are supporting Maduro in, in Venezuela. This is a government who have long forgotten Nelson Mandela's invitation to all of us to say our foreign policy must be guided by human rights. Therefore, the NC cannot be trusted to side with the people of Zimbabwe. That's why we are going to international bodies. SADC is a brotherhood of big brothers. They believe in the rule of man rather than the rule of law. The party says it will write to both the International Criminal Court and United Nations Human Rights Council to investigate human rights abuses in Zimbabwe. Closer to home, Maimani says he will request a joint meeting of various parliamentary committees, including international relations, home affairs, police and defense, to discuss the matter. And an urgent motion is ready to be lodged with Speaker Balagambete for a debate to take place in Parliament. He says South Africa must only aid the Zimbabwean government with humanitarian assistance.
the money must not go to Mnangagwa and his regime. Yes. The money must be for humanitarian issues. The hospitals, they are not working. People are not being paid, teachers, police. <laughs> there is a crisis unfolding before us. That's where the money must go. Can't prop up a military state. You achieve that, then you are simply saying that we legitimize the actions of Zan. Officials from Zimbabwe are reported to have met with South Africa's finance minister Tito Mboweni and Reserve Bank Governor Lisecha Khanyaho to discuss how to ease the crisis in that country. And President Cyril Ramaphosa has called for sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe by several Western countries to be lifted. Maimani says he, together with other opposition leaders in the region, including Zambia's Hakainde Hichelema, plan to visit Zimbabwe. That report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Culture and Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Cameroon police have shot and wounded six people and arrested 117 in several towns where demonstrations against electoral holdups were organized over the weekend. Similar protests took place in Cameroon embassies abroad with protesters destroying property, pulling down pictures of President Paul Bia and putting up those of Maurice Kamto, the man who claims he won the October 7th presidential poll in Cameroon. Muki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. 60 people, a majority of them youths, shout as they march through the streets of Cameroon political capital Yaoundé, hitting spoons and dishes and calling for the unconditional release of everyone arrested in Cameroon during a protest march organized on Saturday by Maurice Kamto, the man who says he won the October 7 presidential election in Cameroon, and President Paul Bia stole his victory. The protesters refused to grant interviews but sang that they will continue marching to all public services until everyone arrested is freed. Cameroon's Minister of Communication and Government spokesperson, René Emmanuel Sadi, says 117 people were arrested and six wounded in several towns, including the economic capital Douala, Yaoundé and the western town of Buda for taking part in the protest organized by Maurice Kamto. It should be made clear that no live ammunition was fired. The government strongly condemns these unacceptable maneuvers to establish Cameroon under the false pretext of an alleged electoral hold-up. Paul Bear was declared by Cameroon Constitutional Council the winner of the October 7 presidential election after the results giving him a landslide victory were challenged by Maurice Kamto. The Constitutional Council rejected Kamto's petition and Kamto announced what he called a national resistance program until Bia steps down. Michel Doki, a lawyer who defended Kamto at the Constitutional Council where they alleged massive fraud and ballot stuffing in favor of Bia's ruling party, the Cameroon's People's Democratic Movement, 
was arrested during the October 27 and 28 protests that Kamto first organized. She was also arrested on Saturday alongside an official called Celestine German. Ndoki says she is fighting to liberate Cameroon. You guys need to understand what we are trying to do. We are trying to save our lives. Cameroon Minister of Territorial Administration Paul Atanganji says the anti-riot police did its job professionally after they were provoked by the protesters. He says Kamto defied a ban not to organize the protest for security reasons because he wants to destabilize Cameroon. The CRM political party and its leadership have been very notorious in the disruption of public order since presidential elections were held in Cameroon. We can no longer tolerate those who undermine the laws of the republic. And what is very conspicuous here, they are talking about uh, no to the electoral hold-up, yes to the count of the ballots. He has a hidden agenda to destabilize Cameroon. We will not give him the opportunity. Atanganji said similar protests took place in Cameroon embassies abroad. Maurice Camto says he will continue with the protests against what he calls electoral hold-up and the government's failure to resolve the separatist crisis in the northwest and southwest regions of the country, and he will continue the protests until Bia leaves power. Bia is now the second oldest president in sub-Saharan Africa after his neighbor Teodoro Obiangemba Basogo of Equatorial Guinea. When his new term is finished, he will be 93 years old. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir says those who are protesting against his government are trying to imitate the 2011 Arab Spring, blaming the protests on unidentified groups from outside the country. He said this on Sunday while addressing a news conference in the Egyptian capital Cairo after meeting with his counterpart Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron has also arrived in the North African country for a three-day visit aimed at strengthening ties between France and Egypt. For more on the significance of both visits, Channel Africa's Kumbele Munjelele spoke to Ibrahim Dean from the Afro-Middle East Centre. That's the main reason for the visit, and that's why it was planned so quickly, mainly because as Egypt is Sudan's neighbor, relations were quite tense until October, uh, you know, when uh, for at times even Sudan imposed an embargo on Egyptian goods. But now relations have been smoothened and he, you know, needed to get, is looking to get more regional support because the protests are, you know, the numbers may not be as large as, as many say, but it's very, very widespread. So the geographically locations mean that it, it's impossible for the government to, you know, current to militarily suppress the protests as it did, you know, previously in Darfur and, you know, in Blue Nile and Kordofan. Um, and so he is trying, you know, he visited Qatar last week. He is trying to, uh, you know, get regional support and reason and funds to try and calm down protesters. I mean, significantly, you know, in his speech he said that, you know, some of the needs are legitimate. Similar to what he's been trying to do is basically saying that the protests are economic in a way, trying to move them away from, you know, calls for his ouster. Now, you mentioned uh, that... Um 
Mbabe, he visited Qatar last week um, as well. Talk to us about uh, why stability in Sudan is so important for Egypt and, uh, of course, uh, the whole Gulf region. Okay, so there's a few things uh, that you have to look at when, you, when you're looking at Sudan. Sudan, uh, you know, strategically, it's very, it's very, geographically, it's very strategically located. Egypt needs it because it's share of the Nile, part of the Nile, you know, 15% of what you would call the White Nile comes from, from you know, from Sudan. It flows from Entebbe uh, via Sudan to Egypt. So water stability. Uh, Sudan also sends troops to Yemen, uh, you know, in the Gulf Co- Coalition on Yemen. And is uh, also, you know, in terms of Qatar, has one of the few states that actually still maintains relations with Qatar, you know, despite the blockade, one of the few regional states. And so, you know, all the countries in the region see Sudan as critically important to protecting the interests. And that's why Al-Bashir is trying to leverage this reasonably important Sudan, get more funds, more support specifically for his, um, you know, his, I mean, Sudan lost 75% of government revenue after the, you know, the, the secession of South Sudan in 2011. So he needs more money and he's trying to get more money or more resources to try and uh, contain the protest. But do you think uh, money or a bailout, uh, as others are calling it, uh, is the solution to Sudan's economic problems? I mean, no. You know, there's, there's yes, it's, Sudan needs the funds, but there's also economic mismanagement. There's the appointment of loyalists to positions. In, in, in October this year, they uh, Sudan wanted to appoint a very good leftist economist as uh, for, um, finance minister, and he declined the post. So there's you know, those, those issues, issues of capacity. Also issues of the fact that, you know, Omar al-Bashir uh, doesn't enjoy as much um, democratic legitimacy. There is a deficit. Uh, and so, you know, to try and solve Sudan's problems, we need you know, we need a government that is more representative or that listens to its people more. And so, you know, until the protest started, this wasn't the case. Now, Bashir's visit uh, can as French President Emmanuel Macron uh, begins his three-day official visit to Egypt, bringing with him a large delegation to the country. What do you think will come out of Emmanuel Macron's visit, uh, Ibrahim? Um, I mean, I think there's a few things that, that will come out. One is more deals for fighters and military equipment. Egypt is one of the biggest uh, buyers of French military equipment, one of the first and one of the biggest. And so, you know, that's one of the key cogs of uh, Macron's visit. And second, is Libya. Um, you know, France and, Lib- uh, and Egypt generally take a side in support of Khalifa Haftar in the Libyan conflict. So, you know, there will likely be further coordination between the two on Libya. Those are the two big factors that, that will come out of Macron's visit. You know, uh, there are talks that Macron may talk a bit about human rights violations in it, but that's very unlikely to happen. So it's more, you know, France trying to uh, fill in the vacuum left by the, you know, Trump administration's inertia when it comes to through deployments and support, you know, for outside actors. Why do you think uh, that is going to be the case? Because human rights abuses uh, seem to be an elephant in the room. I think it's because Macron views Egypt as too strategically important uh, to bring this up. So he's very, you know, one is he wants French arms purchases, you know, from, from Egypt. Two is he wants to continue or maintain his influence in Libya. And three is, you know, under Macron, we've seen this. We've seen this in many places in Africa, in Burkina Faso and Mali, where he's not at all concerned with human rights and more concerned with containing uh, Islamist militancy. And, you know, these, these three factors seem to show that France is taking a position similar to what it did before, you know, in colonialism and post-colonialism, where it was just about supporting regimes that benefit it. Uh, and no, you know, no, not factoring anything about norms, practices, values, uh, you know, democracy, human rights. 
That's Ibrahim Dean, researcher at the South Africa-based Afro-Middle East Center, speaking to Kumbele Munjelele. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Former Busasa COO Angelo Agrizi has revealed to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture how Busasa CEO Gavin Watson allegedly made payments of 300,000 rands to the then South African president Jacob Zuma at his Ngandla homestead. Agrizi also implicated the former chairperson of the Jacob G. Zuma Foundation, Dudumieni, who apparently received monthly cash payments on behalf of the foundation. Mieni is also accused of possessing confidential National Prosecuting Authority documents. Bali Tetani has more. It was day eight of Angela Gritzi's testimony at the Zondo Commission where more allegations of money changing hands emerged. The former Busasa COO says Dudumieni, who heads the Jacob Zuma Foundation, received 300,000 rand in monthly payments for the foundation. Gavin was quite uh, open. Gavin Watson would tell us that he's paying at 300,000 rand a month. And um, he was, he always say he hopes he, that she's giving it to, to Zuma. Um, and the payment was for the foundation, apparently. Um, Which foundation? For the Jacob Zuma Foundation. What position? But it would seem that the Busasa CEO, Gavin Watson, wanted to make a lasting impression on Mieni and purchased a Louis Vuitton bag for her as arranged with cash inside. Chair, one morning, it was early in the morning at about five to six, uh, Gavin Watson asked me he needed to impress Miani, and he asked me, you know, how do we do it? So I said, well, don't ask me, ask my wife. I mean, <laughs> what do I know? Um, so my wife said to him, well, you should go and buy a nice handbag at Louis Vuitton. I think my wife was actually hinting that I must go buy one from, for her. But nonetheless, the handbag was, she arranged it. The handbag was actually um, delivered with, and then Gavin Watson put 300,000 rand in the bag and he delivered it. And um, I know this because even after... delivered it to who? To Dudumiani. Right. So he delivered a Louis Vuitton handbag... With Busasa facing a number of legal issues, Agritzi says a meeting which involved former President Jacob Zuma was arranged at Ngandla. Here, he says, more cash was delivered to the president. Thereafter, there would be numerous meetings coordinated at the Ngandla residence. And on one such occasion, I remember Gavin Watson was concerned that uh, the president wasn't getting the, the necessary envelope, so to speak, you know, the 300,000 rand. So I remember him telling me that um, we have to pack it and he was going to deliver it directly to 
um, the president and make sure that he's been getting it uh, from Yen himself. Agriti also named some of the journalists who were on Busasa's payroll. He said this was aimed at getting positive coverage. The one name he gave me was Ntuli, apparently working for the Times or the Star newspaper. The other one was a lady at the time that he was working very closely with called investigated by this commission. Agritzi is back on the witness stand on Tuesday where he is expected to conclude his testimony. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. On the headlines, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has ordered the arrest of a number of security officials following a report by the news channel Sky News that shows officers physically assaulting a member of the public. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has urged the French President Emmanuel Macron to stop seeing his country through Western eyes and recognize that his administration has spared the country from a civil war. And the Democratic Republic of Congo's government says it has extradited two leaders of the Rwanda-Hutu FDLR rebels to Rwanda as part of a legal agreement. Those are the stories making headlines. Abari etise mache mingabo baoni kedu mbote ndemne bonsoir Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Former regional head of South Africa's NPA advocate Glynis Breitenbach will this morning appear before the Mokoro Inquiry in Centurion, south of Pretoria. Breitenbach, who left her position to join the DA as a parliamentarian a few years ago, is expected to testify about her alleged toxic work relationship with her prosecutorial principles. The inquiry is probing suspended senior advocates Nom Gobojiba and Lawrence Mkwebi's fitness to hold office. Fennel Schumer reports. Advocate Lenis Breitenbach will be the sixth witness to appear before the inquiry since it commenced last week. She's expected to testify about the frustrations she endured during her stay at the NPA. Breitenbach was acquitted on charges of perjury and defeating the ends of justice, among others, over a year ago. This after the NPA took her to court for deleting some important data from the state computer that she was using for official duties. But the Pretoria North Magistrates Court couldn't find any wrongdoing against him. Dr. Lewilenka Lewis, senior lecturer in criminal procedure law at the University of Pretoria, predicts what could be expected at the Mokoro inquiry. Predominantly, the evidence will be uh, regarding the ethical duties of prosecutorial uh, personnel. Uh, remember, both these people have been uh, involved with the day-to-day 
runnings of the National Director of Public Prosecution for many years. They are both senior advocates, uh, prosecutors in, in essence, uh, for many, many years. So all in all, they have been involved with the day-to-day running of decision-making on dockets, the in-house dealings and ethical uh, principles of the prosecutorial authorities, etc. Breitenbach was original head of the NPA Special Commercial Crimes Unit at the time she was prosecuted. Carl Lewis says her testimony is likely to expose more damaging evidence against Mkhwebi and Jibam. Yeah, you must remember there was already certain judgments made against these uh, two advocates. In essence, they were already declared to be unfit for office. And in terms of the requirements, ethical principles regarding the profession, the legal profession, uh, the utmost good faith is required from legal personnel. Not only that, a person must be fit and proper for office. And there's already been certain allegations that they are not fit and proper to hold office of any kind uh, in terms of legal profession. And I think this is just another add-on to what we already have. Revelations of fraud and corruption against former crime intelligence head Lieutenant Richard Mlulim also emerged at the inquiry on Friday. The inquiry also head of senior police officer and former head of the Hawks in KwaZulu-Natal, Johan Boysen, who was allegedly charged with false racketeering activities. Senior prosecutor advocate Jan Ferreira testified how suspended advocate Jibam fabricated charges against Boysen in an attempt to derail some of his high-profile investigations. Ferreira responded to questions by evidence leader advocate Nazrin Bawam. Can I take you to the Boysen matter? For this charge of racketeering, there's a very serious charge. There's grave implications for somebody found guilty of racketeering, correct? Absolutely. The Poker Act, in fact, elevates it to such a level that you require the consent of the National Director. Yes, it's only the National Director that may right. authorise that. In the case of General Poison, the enterprise was regarded as the Cato Manor unit, correct? That is correct, yes. Boysen is currently working closely with renowned former state prosecutor Hernell, who's heading the Afro Forum's private prosecutions unit. Boysen is expected to testify at the Mokoro inquiry later this week. Fanuel Schumer, SABC News, Pretoria. The family of Sarah Moyakula Muthala, who died during a stampede at the Enlightened Christian Gathering Church in Pretoria, is demanding answers from Malawian-born prophet Shepherd Bushiri. The family has accused the prophet and his followers of ill-treating their loved ones at their time of death. Three people died and at least 17 others were injured during a stampede during the church's overnight service on the 28th of December in Pretoria last year. Yesterday, Prophet Bushiri told the CRL Rights Commission that they would have a memorial service for the people who died at the service. However, this family has rejected the proposed memorial service because their mother was not treated with dignity after she died. Tabilimpele reports. My mother loved the church, but the way she died, we are still asking ourselves, what happened? What happened? That was Deborah Litswalo, whose mother died during the stampede at the ECG church in Pretoria in December. Her already decomposed body was found four days later after being told the body had been taken to a public mortuary, which was not true. There's an accident happening now in your house. You clear the scene. You took the like, piece of trash to wherever you want to take them to. And then after that, you continue with your service. Then you, 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 you call yourself 
man of God. Deborah's brother Mandla broke down during the hearing as he remembered his mother's condition at the mortuary. The more I talk about <laughs> So please, this commission must get that from now on. Because it affected me. He says legal action should be taken against Prophet Bushiri and his church. By moving those bodies from the church to this private mosque, they were concealing this, this thing, this, the death of these three people. Maybe they were hoping that no one will know about them. Bushiri has apologized for the deaths of three people at his church. We, the ECG International Church, would like to take this opportunity to iterate his deepest apology to the South African people for the accident that happened at his Pretoria branch. Meanwhile, the South African National Civic Organization wants Bushiri's church to compensate the three families with at least one million rands each. The family must not compensate less than one million. That can will be our, our benchmark uh, chairperson. Sanko is making that submission. The city of Tswane and city of Joburg are expected to make their presentations to the CRL Rights Commission today. I'm Tabil Mpelef in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South African National Park Sandparks has launched Project Ivory in Palaburwa in the country's Limpopo province to combat elephant poaching in the Kruger National Park. The organization says elephant poaching is on the increase in the park, but it's still under control. Lila Magnus reports. Chief Ranger Nick Funda says although elephant poaching has increased from two elephants in 2014 to 71 in 2018, they are still on top of the situation. It's not like it's running out of hand. We are in control. We know what we're doing and we are managing it as we have highlighted in terms of the steep decline of incursions and so forth. But it tells you that poachers never, never give up and they don't relax. They will keep on coming up with new tactics. And we are also catching up with that game. We are always ready. There are 19,000 elephants in the Kruger National Park. Funda says they increase with about 4% per year, which translates to 760 elephants. So the elephant population is not on the decline due to poaching. I still want to see a situation how South Africans or the public are going to respond if we can lose 100 elephants in a day. What we are concerned is criminality. We cannot allow criminals to harvest or to steal from the public. That's our mandate. We're mandated to protect that. And we think elephant poaching is going to be ugly. Elephant, it's easy to see. And if we can get out of hand, it will be difficult to get it under control. Therefore, to be proactive is critical for us. 
To support Project Ivory, the honorary rangers gave sand parks tracker dogs for the northern part of the park. They also sponsored the first ever horse unit, which consists of seven horses. Derek Mashule, the regional ranger where the horses are deployed, says the horses can travel further and faster than humans. They are quiet, they are quiet when they walk through the bushes. And uh, you've got the height you know, advantage as well to be able to see distances. And furthermore, um, horses are animals anyway. You can get closer to other you know, game without you know, the game reacting negatively. So those are some of the advantages. But of importance is that you cover long distances over a short time of space. A Cessna airplane was moved from Skukuza and will be stationed at Palaborwa. The support infrastructure was donated by the honorary rangers. Pilot Yaku Mol says having the aircraft at Palaborwa cuts their response time in half. What we're hoping to achieve with this Palaborwa base is to increase our capacity and our support for operations in the north of the Kruger National Park. With the increase in elephant poaching, specifically in the north, the demand for aerial support has increased exponentially. It will also enable us to create a greater presence in the skies over northern Kruger. Funda says before the launch of the project, their resources were split in two, between the south, where rhinos are being poached, and the north, where elephants are poached. Most of the elephant poachers come from Mozambique. Funda says they suspect the elephant poachers are rhino poachers who moved north. I am Lila Magnus in the Kruger National Park in Limpopo. Our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. Good morning. Chinese telecoms giant Huawei says it's being unfairly targeted by the United States to restrict its access to the American market. This after the U.S. Justice Department filed a host of criminal charges against Huawei and its chief financial officer, Meng Wangzhou. The charges against the world's second largest smartphone maker include accusations of bank fraud, obstruction of justice and theft of technology. One indictment alleges that the two affiliates of the company sold trade secrets from the U.S. rival T-Mobile. Meng and Huawei denied the allegations. Meng was arrested in Canada last month at the request of the U.S. for allegedly evading sanctions on Iran. The BBC's Karishima Vaswani reports. If you look at the detail of these charges against Huawei, they're pretty much at the very heart of the U.S.'s problems with China. Intellectual property theft is one of the things that the U.S. Department of Justice is claiming Huawei has done, stealing technology from American companies, going through the U.S. financial system, deceiving it, if you will, in order to profit directly. Another consistent refrain we've heard from the United States about China. The Commerce Secretary there, Wilbur Ross, saying this has nothing to do with trade talks, I think the Chinese will certainly not see it that way because the timing of this is pretty significant. 
Chinese Ambassador to Rwanda, Rao Hongwei, says the Asian country's development will create more opportunities for Rwanda and Africa in general. The envoy was speaking at the weekend at a reception organized to mark the Chinese New Year at the Chinese Embassy in Rwanda's capital, Kigali. On the Chinese calendar, the New Year falls on February the 5th, but the Chinese in Rwanda marked it much earlier. The First National Bank of Botswana has enhanced its online self-service platform for cross-border transactions. This is part of the bank's bricks to click strategy, which maximizes technology benefits to streamline and boost customer experience. Dubbed Forex Online, the platform enables online payments and transfers of foreign currency for both individual and corporate clients, eliminating the manual process of submitting telegraphic forms at the branch. According to the bank, Customers can now execute transactions in a matter of minutes from the convenience of their homes or offices. The Kingdom of Eswatini's Alliance Foods, a subsidiary of African Alliance, is scheduled to take over Kentucky Fried Chicken stores in the country on the 1st of March. African Alliance hinted the move in a press conference held in December last year. The company says it has been granted approval to purchase all seven KFC quick service restaurants from Pymentius. KFC, the current owner. KFC is an ultimate subsidiary of Yum Brands, a company listed on the Nasdaq stock market in the U.S. that through its subsidiaries and associate operates in the quick service restaurant sector worldwide. Kenya's central bank has held its benchmark lending rate at 9%, saying inflation was anchored within the target range. Policymakers say the decision, the third hold in a row since September last year, was also supported by their view that the economy was operating close to its potential. Year-on-year inflation was 5.7% last month, well within the Kenya government's preferred band of 2.57%. Economic growth accelerated to 6% in the third quarter of last year, up from 4% in 2017. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.33 Nigerian Naira, 10.22 Botswana Pula, 99.94 Kenyan Shilling, and at 11.89 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.75 Brazilian roll, 65.99 Russian ruble, 70.92 Indian rupee, 6.75 Chinese yuan, and at a 13.64 to the South African rand. The U.S. dollar is trading at 75 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,304, platinum $810 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.10 a barrel. Tabi Solohoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. Wales football's governing body, FIFA, has lifted the two-year ban on Zambia's former African footballer of the year, Kalusha Bualia. FIFA has had his two-year ban from all football reduced on appeal six months after the decision was made. Our Zambian correspondent, Namuchana Ligezo, has more on the ban.
in their letter uh, they are saying and i quote the fifa appeal committee has a has upheld the appeal lodged by Mr. Kalushawalia, the former Football Association of Zambia president, the executive committee member of CAF, and has reduced the sanction previously imposed by the Ethics Committee in its decision dated 12 April 2018. Read the statement from FIFA and end of quote. And it continues, it says, after analyzing and taking into consideration of the case, the FIFA's appeals committee decided to reduce the duration of the ban from taking part in any football-related activity imposed on, on Mr. Walia to the period already served at the time of notification of the present uh, decision. Namuchana says, Walia's spokesperson says they are happy with the decision as they always maintained their innocence. And according to, not to Mr. Kalusha, Walia's spokesperson, Nkweto Temboe, he said uh, they were so thrilled, you know, they're so happy that you know, the ban that was imposed on Mr. Wally has been lifted by the world soccer governing body. You know, the issue of, of Kalusha Wally is one thing that divided the Zambian football fraternity. Others, they, you know, they said he deserved it because you know, he involved himself in a lot of deals. Others said, no, you know, the man was just, he was just unfairly treated by FIFA. The English Premiership side Cardiff City manager Neil Warnock says speaks to the press for the first time since Imali Nusala's disappearance after he signed for the club. Warnock says the past week was the most difficult time of his 40-year career. The family of Salah have flown to Genzi from their home in Argentina to continue efforts to find the missing pair, despite the official search being called off. I've been in football management now. Um, 40 years I think now and uh, it's by far the most difficult week in my career by an absolute mile it's um, the traumatic you know I can't um, even now I can't get my head around uh, the situation and um, you know when I look at Romino and the family etc etc I think it's uh, it's such a, a difficult time I think you've got to you know, I keep looking at my own children and and uh, and thinking what I would be doing now as well. So it's a it's a, a very traumatic for area, but my sympathies are with them. I think uh, I think the the family has been fantastic and a, and a massive plus to uh, our fans and Nantes fans. I think they've been amazing as well. On to cricket news, Protea skipper Faf Duplessis revealed that a few tired bodies in the South African camp is a concern following the thrashing by Pakistan at one rush on Sunday. A terrible betting collapse saw the Proteas bundled out for 164 in 41 overs at the Bull Ring in Johannesburg. Pakistan cruised to their target with 111 balls to spare as the tourists won by eight wickets and broke the Proteas' unbeaten Pink Day winning streak. And finally, with the golf news, South Africa's Sean Norris has been named as one of the 11 sponsors' invitations added to the world-class field at the forthcoming Saudi International. The lineup already boasts four of the world's top five players, seven major champions and eight players from last year's Ryder Cup at Royal Greens Golf and Country Club from the 31st of January to the 3rd of February. Norris has been making waves on the Asian Tour and Japan Golf Tour circuit with a win last year at the Heiwa PGM Championship in November. A 36-year-old finished second on Japan's Order of Merit standings last season and is currently ranked 79th on the World Golf Rankings. That's your Sport News this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the sour pressure mounts on Zimbabwe's president to start national dialogue and concerns over violent crackdown on protesters in Cameroon. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Black Motion with a song titled Omodudu.
Oh, 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 oh,